Well, here's a cheerful episode of the podcast, a few reflections on the March for Life, and then a question about if God kills babies, how come Christians are pro-life? How would I respond to that tweet sent by Adam? This is a maybe not an episode for the kids. I mean, we talk about some kind of dark topics, so use your own discussion, or not discussion, use your own discernment, that's what it's called, uh, on this one. But I uh, hope for those of you who listen, hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Thoughts from the March for Life. I had the privilege last weekend, last Friday, of going to the March for Life in Washington, D.C. First time I'd been there. According to the people who were there, it was a lot smaller than it had been in years past, which was maybe unexpected uh, after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, though. Maybe that's the idea that it goes back to the uh, to the states. I also expected there to be a lot of counter-protesting and what we saw two little groups of five people surrounded by police doing the counter-protest and a couple of people standing on tops of museums shouting vulgarities, but, but that was it. But I've been thinking about the March for Life and thought I'd put down a few thoughts, one, two, three, four, five, seven thoughts here on the March for Life in no particular order, um, but just maybe some of the things that I noticed. The, the first is that a march needs a word. It's not just enough to walk around. That's, I, I don't know what that is, especially if you, like you're walking around in the middle of the street to block traffic and stuff. It's just a, something of a, I don't know, an annoyance or an inconvenience for the people that are there. It's, it's a act of disobe- civil disobedience, I guess, although it's, it was, it wasn't illegal. It's totally legal, but the, the, the march as an activity, in other words, it needs a word connected to it which is why I think the rally is so important. I think it's also important for people to have signs, although I didn't have one, but to have a sign that says what, what you're there for. Um, because, because just a march is not an argument. You need, you need to articulate an argument, which is that the government has the responsibility to protect the life of the unborn. That's the, that's the thing that the march is trying to articulate. And, and that, I think, is really what the the point of it was i was i was thinking what what is what are we doing here and i was realizing that uh, our cultural attention span is so flip floppy and it moves this way and that it, i mean you know one day we're supposed to be outraged about the crisis at the border and then the next day we're supposed to be outraged about gain of function research and then the next day we're supposed to be outraged about racial injustice. And then the next day, we're supposed to be outraged about the war in Ukraine. And then the next day and the next day, and it's always the news cycle is this kind of rising and waning tide of outrage. And I think for the politicians, it must be easy for them to get swept up into that. Because if you're talking about the thing that everybody else is talking about, then you get the clicks and the likes and the attention. I think the March for Life, it's best um, purpose is to remind the politicians that this matters, and in fact, this matters most, that the government has an obligation to protect life. And so it, it helps them, uh, it, puts, it puts that issue back on the table. It puts that issue back into the conversation. It puts that issue back in people's attention. And I, I think that's the, 
the best reason to do it. It, it keeps it, it's fighting against this distractibility of the what's the the now thing that we're supposed to be worried about and, and takes us back to the basics. That's good. I also noticed that the the, the age of the um, of the marchers was very young. It was a lot of youth. And the march taps into that um, desire for the young people to be socially involved. And I, I think that's something that I'm thinking about as well. Like everything has a cause nowadays. I'm not that old. I'm what, 45 or something. But it seems like even more and more that, 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 that it's the spirit of our age is that everyone's got to have a cause. And this is, if you're going to have a cause, this is a good one. I don't know a better one, but it occurred to me that that's the case. And also the, the strong Catholic presence that's there. There's an irony in this. I always wonder about it. And that is that when, uh, when Luther was trying to talk about how society should be ordered, and that, that's the large catechism. That's the, that's the thrust and the argument of the large catechism. Here's how we order society. Now that all the, the institutions of the Middle Ages that had grown up around the Catholic Church, like the priesthood and the monastery and the nunnery and all this, after all those are gone, how are we going to order ourselves? And so the large catechism was the Lutheran argument for a Lutheran ordering of the world against the Catholic ordering of the world. But now we can't find anybody who actually thinks that the world is ordered. So our 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 first enemies have turned out to be on issues of life and marriage and things like this have turned out to be the only friends left. The place where natural law still has something to say. I mean, it's an amazing sort of thing. I mean, the, the, the first generation of Lutherans would have argued the Catholic church has lost natural law, but now the Lutherans say the catch, the Catholics are the only people left that have even heard of natural law. That's how, how much things have changed. I think that's very curious. So, well, God be praised that the Catholic Church has uh, still a um, solid focus on issues of life, especially the sanctity of life and protecting the life of the unborn, which it didn't get mixed up into all their other kind of stuff, anti-death penalty stuff and all this other. And I also wish that the Catholic politicians could be a little more consistent. I saw one sign at the march that said, um, excommunicate pro-choice Catholic politicians. And that probably needs to happen. Um, probably needs to happen across the board is that Christians are going to have to make this real clear that this is not a matter of indifference for us. But there you go. But on that, there's a danger that everything becomes political. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but you know this old thing for for a hammer, everything, every problem looks like a nail. For a politician, every problem is political. But there's something more than that. Ideology, one of the marks of ideology is that it, it reduces everything to politics. If it, uh, Remember the three estates? The family, the church, and the state. And there's an assumption in our own secular age that the family is not permanent, that the church is only an option, and so the only estate that stands, the only thing that you can be sure of, is the state. So if, you, if you're trying to solve a problem, the only way that people see to solve it is through the state or through political action. 
and everything becomes political. There's nothing pre-political, nothing post-political. We see that with questions of life, of personhood, of marriage. Uh, all this is understood as a political matter, and that's very dangerous. The life issues are not, I mean, they are political, but they're not only political. They're more than political. They're pre-political. They, uh, what, what, what we're calling our politicians to is a recognition of the truth of the value of every human life. And that exists whether the government acknowledges it or not. So one of the dangers is that we start to think that this is only a political issue and everything gets reduced to politics. We have to resist that constantly. Uh, a couple more thoughts. I, I remember I talked to a couple of the police who were there on guard uh, during the march and I greeted them, thanked them and asked them how their day has been. And they all said, easy. And that made me happy that this was not an unruly crowd or disorderly mob, but an easy group, a kind group. That It should be that if there's a bunch of pro-lifers or if there's some other Christian cause, if there's a bunch of Christians, that should be the easiest day the, the police have. And, um, and that's good. Finally, um, Pastor Harrison Goodman was at the uh, Youth for Life rally that I was at before and and he gave the devotion on the morning of the march and it was a, it was a nice devotion he said a, a lot of really nice and helpful things but w one of them was he was talking about why do we march and he says we are not marching to win we are marching to help and that is good and right what what is our vocation our vocation is not to win arguments our vocation is to help people now, sometimes that help looks like winning a political argument, but, but that's not the point. The point is not to win. The point is not to be right. The point is to love your neighbor. Now, it's, it's hard to love your neighbor when you're wrong, but it's not enough just to be right. Like, this is what St. Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. If I have, a, I have all knowledge, but I don't have love, I'm, a, I'm useless. I, don't, I, don't, I do more harm than, than good. And so we all have this vocation of helping and we engage in the argument for life and for the unborn and also for all the other life issues, marriage and, and old age and the role of suffering and everything. We engage in these because the Lord has commanded us to love our neighbor. And this is one of the ways we love our neighbor. So we're there not to win, but to help. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5, our battle is not against flesh and blood, that is, other people but against the powers and principalities in this present world. So we're fighting against the devil, and that is a good reminder. Well, anyway, there's a few thoughts on the march, the March for Life. If you're hanging around Texas, Austin, on January 28th, the Saturday, we're going to march down here too. That'll be a lot of fun. Our word comes at 9 when we hear the preaching, 10 for the Bible study, and then, and then we march. Join us if you can. Sticking with the abortion topic, here's a question from Adam, who is asking for my response to something that came across uh, his Twitter feed. Here's the, here's the quote that he saw. Christians are really trying to convince us that the God who murdered Bathsheba's newborn, killed all the firstborn sons of Egypt, sent bears to murder little children, 
commanded Joshua to kill all the children of Jericho, now suddenly cares about unborn babies? I'd like to hear your response and hopefully get the conversation to a wider audience. God bless you. Thanks, Adam. God bless you, too. Uh, This is pretty obnoxious, this tweet. The idea is, how can Christians be pro-life if God if God kills babies. So what I'd like to ask the person who, um, who writes the tweet is to say, well, what, so what is your option here? Are you, you, are you saying because God kills babies, Christians should be pro-abortion? Like, is it a bad thing that God, do you think, I, maybe this is how I'd ask, do you think it's a bad thing that God killed all the firstborn children in Egypt? And if so, don't you think it's a bad thing to abort babies? Uh, or, or do you think it was a good thing that God killed all those babies in, in the promised land by, by the sword of, of Joshua? And therefore, it's a good thing to be an abortionist. In other words, if Christians are inconsistent for believing that God kills babies, let's just let it stand. If we're inconsistent for thinking that God kills babies and that we shouldn't abort the unborn, then where is the consist? What what consistency do you want? Do you want? I, I I think they would want the opposite inconsistency. They would want a God who doesn't kill babies, but abortion doctors that do, and that seems to be a much worse option. I mean, that's what we have, and that's horrible. But but how would you make it consistent? Okay, God kills babies, so it's okay for us to do it. Is that what the consistency they're asking for? Or that we that we shouldn't kill babies, we should be pro-choice, and also we should not believe in a, in a God who does all these mean, bad things? Where, where, where's your consistency? What, in other words, what? Are, are, you're just throwing this stuff up there to both insult God and Christians. Now, I, I know that God happened to say to us, and write it down, he said, you shall not murder. I also happen to know that the Bible teaches us that death is not how God designed things. That we were never meant to die. Don't eat the fruit on the day that you eat of it. Dying, you will die. So that the Lord um, created us to live and live forever, not to die. That death is an unnatural result of Adam and Eve's sin. That God has put all sorts of things in place to preserve and keep human life protected and sacred, including the government and the command, you shall not murder. Uh, And that this is um, all instituted by God. But it's also true that everybody dies. In that way, if you want to just kind of take it as a tweet, God kills everybody. In fact, even the babies that are being aborted, they would say, well, God's killing them. Because it is true that our days are in the Lord's hands. He's numbered them. And they cannot be ended apart from his will. Does this make God a murderer? Well, I, I suppose if you just want to use the language that way, you could say it, but this is the point, is that the fact that we die is a result of all of us being convicted of a capital crime. All of us, according to God's law, deserve death. All of us, according to God's law, I don't even deserve life to begin with in the first place. So that God gives us anything is a gift of pure grace that comes from his kindness. Now, uh, what was going on in all of these different cases 
uh, is that they were acts of God's judgment. Uh, the death of David and Bathsheba's firstborn. The death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. The death of, of all of the Canaanites that lived in the promised land were, were results of God's explicit determination to punish those people either who sinned or who were associated with the unclean, uncleanness of the people. And it's worse than that. God leveled the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God in the flood destroyed everybody except for Noah, his wife, and his three boys and their three wives. I mean, those examples that the person gave in the tweet aren't as bad as it gets. And the Bible does not offer an explanation of those acts of judgment, but puts them in front of us and says, this is your God. You should fear him. There's no excusing it or whitewashing it or softening it. You should fear him. But it doesn't say that this punishment is undeserved. In fact, the only thing that the Bible talks about being undeserved is the grace of God and the kindness of God, who instead of visiting everyone with both temporal affliction and death and eternal death, instead puts all of that affliction on his son. I mean, if you want to talk about abortion, if you wanted to if you wanted to, for some reason, try to have some sort of biblical consistency and have an argument for abortion, you could argue it something like this. We should be able to kill our kids because God the Father killed his son. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. And, and, but the point is that God put all of our sins, all of our troubles, all of our afflictions, all of, our, uh, all of his wrath that we deserved, he put all of that in, onto Christ who suffered all of that in our place. So that we could have the thing that is totally undeserved. The forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. And that is good. I mean, everything that the Lord gives is is an undeserved gift, including all the gifts of life. But it's especially here when the Lord promises that we'll live forever with a good, clean conscience. Boy, then we rejoice. So I hope that helps, Adam. A couple thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this particular topic as well. Thanks for sending the question. God be praised. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of What Not the Podcast. Again, if you're hanging around Texas, January 28th, Saturday, that's the March for Life, wolfmuller.co slash contact to send your questions. Producer Packer loves to get those and put them in the right spot. He answers a bunch of them that he, he wants to answer instead of me. He just starts emailing you. That's pretty cool. Um, uh, what's the other thing? Oh, yeah, the Substack, what, what Not the Podcast, grew out of What Not the Email newsletter, which you can get at wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday. Which is pretty cool. That's totally free. Give away a free book once a month to someone who signed up there. 
So that's cool also. And you can subscribe to it for five bucks a month, which gets you nothing. It's just the same exactly, but it supports the cause. So thanks for doing that. You who are subscribed. Thanks so much. Christ is risen.